Section 8 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 8. As I Lay a Thinking, by Richard Harris Barham. The author of the Ingoldsby Legends belongs to a well-defined and delightful class of men, chiefly found in modern England, and indeed mostly bred and made possible by the conditions of English society and the Anglican Church. It is that of clergymen, who in the public eye are chiefly wits and diners out, jokers and literary humorists, yet are conscientious and devoted ministers of their religion, and curators of their religious charges, honoring their profession and humanity by true and useful lives and lovable characters. They are men of the sort loathed by Lewis Carroll's heroine in The Two Voices, a kind of folk who have no horror of a joke, and indeed love it dearly, but are as firm in principle and unostentatiously dutiful in conduct as if they were leaden Puritans or narrow devotees. By far the best remembered of this class, for themselves or their work, are Sidney Smith and Richard Harris Barham. But their relative repute is one of the oddest paradoxes in literary history. Roughly speaking, the one is remembered and unread, the other read and unremembered. Sidney Smith's name is almost as familiar to the masses as Scott's, and few could tell a line that he wrote. Barham's writing is almost as familiar as Scott's, and few would recognize his name. Yet he is in the foremost rank of humorists. His place is wholly unique, and is likely to remain so. It will be an age before a similar combination of tastes and abilities is found once more. Macaulay said truly of Sir Walter Scott that he combined the minute learning of an antiquary with the fire of a great poet. Barham combined a like learning in different fields, and joined to a different outlook and temper of mind, with the quick perceptions of a great wit, the brimming zest and high spirits of a great joker, the genial nature and lightness of a born man of the world, and the gifts of a wonderful improvisator in verse. Withal he had just enough of serious purpose to give much of his work a certain measure of cohesive unity, and thus impress it on the mind as no collection of random skits could do. That purpose is the feathering which steadies the arrows and sends them home. It is pleasant to know that one who has given so good a time to others had a very good time himself, that we are not, as so often happens, relishing a farce that stood for tragedy with the maker, and substituting our laughter for his tears. Barham had the cruel sorrows of personal bereavement so few escape, but in material things his career was wholly among pleasant ways. He was well-born and with means, well-educated, well-nurtured. He was free from the sordid squabbles or anxious watching and privation which fall to the lot of so many of the best. He was happy in his marriage and its attendant home and family, and most fortunate in his friendships and the superb society he enjoyed. His birth and position as a gentleman of good landed family, combined with his profession, opened all doors to him. 
but it was the qualities personal to himself, after all, which made these things available for enjoyment. His desires were moderate. He counted success what more eager and covetous natures might have esteemed comparative failure. His really strong intellect and wide knowledge and cultivation enabled him to meet the foremost men of letters on equal terms. His kind heart, generous nature, exuberant fun, and entertaining conversation endeared him to every one, and made his company sought by every one. They saved much trouble from coming upon him, and lightened what did come. And no blight could have withered that perennial fountain of jollity, drollery, and light-heartedness. But these were only the ornaments of a staunchly loyal and honorable nature, and a lovable and unselfish soul. One of his friends writes of him thus, the profits of agitating pettifoggers would have materially lessened in a district where he acted as a magistrate, and duels would have been nipped in the bud at his regimental mess. It is not always an easy task to do as you would be done by. But to think as you would be thought of, and thought for, and to feel as you would be felt for, is perhaps still more difficult as superior powers of tact and intellect are here required in order to second good intentions. These faculties, backed by an uncompromising love of truth and fair dealing, indefatigable good nature, and a nice sense of what was due to every one in the several relations of life, both gentle and simple, rendered our late friend invaluable, either as an adviser or a peacemaker, in matters of delicate and difficult handling. Barham was born in Canterbury, England, December 6, 1788, and died in London, June 17, 1845. His ancestry was superior, the family having derived its name from possessions in Kent in Norman days. He lost his father, a genial bon vivant of literary tastes, who seems like a reduced copy of his son, when but five years old, and became heir to a fair estate, including Tappington Hall, the picturesque old gabled mansion so often imaginatively misdescribed in the Ingoldsby legends, but really having the famous blood-stained stairway. He had an expensive private education, which nearly ended with his life at the age of fourteen by a carriage accident, which shattered and mangled his right arm, crippling it permanently. As so often happens, the disaster was really a piece of good fortune. It turned him to, or confirmed him, in quiet antiquarian scholarship, and established connections which ultimately led to the legends. He may owe immortality to it. After passing through St. Paul's, London, and Brasenos, Oxford, he studied law, but finally entered the church. After a couple of small curacies in Kent, he was made rector of Snargate and curate of Warehorn near Romney Marsh, all four in a district where smuggling was a chief industry, and the Marsh in especial, a noted haunt of desperadoes, for smugglers then took their lives in their hands, of which the legends are rich in reminiscences. In 1819, during this incumbency, he wrote a novel, Baldwin, which was a failure, and part of another, my cousin Nicholas, which, finished fifteen years later, had fair success as a serial in Blackwood's magazine. 
an opportunity offering in eighteen twenty one he stood for a minor canonry in st paul's cathedral london and obtained it his income was less than before but he had entered the metropolitan field which brought him rich enjoyment and permanent fame he paid a terrible price for them his unhealthy london house cost him the lives of three of his children to make up for his shortened means he became editor of the london chronicle and a contributor to various other periodicals including the notorious weekly john bull sometime edited by theodore hook in eighteen twenty four he became a priest in the chapel royal at st james palace and soon after gained a couple of excellent livings in essex which put him at ease financially he was inflexible in principle a firm tory though without rancor he was very high church but had no sympathy with the oxford movement or catholicism he preached careful and sober sermons without oratorical display and with rigid avoidance of levity he would not make the church a field either for fireworks or jokes or even for displays of scholarship or intellectual gymnastics in his opinion religious establishments were kept up to advance religion and morals and both he and his wife wrought zealously in the humble but exacting fields of parochial good works he was however fast becoming one of the chief ornaments of that brilliant group of london wits whose repute still vibrates from the early part of the century many of them actors authors artists musicians and others met at the garrick club and barham joined it the names of sydney smith and theodore hook are enough to show what it was but there were others equally delightful not the least so or least useful a few who could not see a joke at all and whose simplicity and good nature made them butts for the hoaxes and solemn chaff of the rest barbara's diary quoted in his son's life gives an exquisite instance in eighteen thirty four his old schoolmaster bentley established bentley's miscellany and barham was asked for contributions the first he sent was the amusing but quite conceivable spectre of tappington but there soon began the immortal series of versified local stories legendary church miracles antiquarian curios witty summaries of popular plays skits on london life and so on under the pseudonym of thomas ingoldsby which sprang instantly into wide popularity and have never fallen from public favor since nor can they till appreciation of humor is dead in the world they were collected and illustrated by leech Cruikshank, and others who were inspired by them to some of their best designs perhaps the most perfect realization in art of the devil in his moments of jocose triumph is leech's figure in the housewarming a later series appeared in colburn's new monthly magazine in eighteen forty three he wrote some excellent pieces of their kind in prose besides the one already mentioned the weird and well-constructed leech of folkstone and the passage of life of henry harris both half serious tales of medieval magic the thoroughly ingoldsbyan legend of sheppy with its irreverent farce high animal spirits and antiquarianism the equally characteristic lady rohesia which would be vulgar but for his sly wit and drollery but none of these are as familiar as the versified legends nor have they the astonishing variety of entertainment found in the latter 
the ingoldsby legends have been called an english naturalization of the french metrical contes but barham owes nothing to his french models save the suggestion of method and form not only is his matter all his own but he has anglified the whole being of the metrical form itself his facility of versification the way in which the whole language seems to be liquid in his hands and ready to pour into any channel of verse was one of the marvellous things of literature it did not need the free random movement of the majority of the tales where the lines may be anything from one foot to six from spondaic to dactylic in some of them he tied himself down to the most rigid and inflexible metrical forms and moved as lightly and freely in those fetters as if they were non-existent as to the astonishing rhymes which meet us at every step they form in themselves a poignant kind of wit often double and even treble one word rhyming with an entire phrase or one phrase with another not only of the oddest kind but as nicely adapted to the necessities of expression and meaning as if intended or invented for that purpose alone they produce on us the effect of the richest humor one of his most diverting properties is the set of morals he draws to everything of nonsensical literalness and infantile gravity the perfection of solemn fooling thus in the lay of st cuthbert where the devil has captured the heir of the house whom the nurse had forgot and left there in his chair alternately sucking his thumb and his pear the moral is drawn among others perhaps it's as well to keep children from plums and pears in their season and sucking their thumbs and part of the moral to the lay of st medard is don't give people nicknames don't even in fun call any one snuff-coloured son of a gun and they generally wind up with some slyly shrewd piece of worldly wisdom and wit thus the closing moral to the blasphemer's warning is to married men this for the rest of your lives think how your misconduct may act on your wives don't swear then before them lest haply they faint or what sometimes occurs run away with a saint often they are broader yet and intended for the club rather than the family indeed the tales as a whole are club tales with an audience of clubmen always in mind not be it remembered bestialities like their french counterparts or the later english and american improvements on the french not even objectionable for general reading but full of exclusively masculine joking allusions and winks unintelligible to the other sex and not welcome if they were intelligible he has plenty of melody but it is hardly recognized because of the doggerel meaning which swamps the music in the farce and this applies to more important things than the melody the average reader floats on the surface of this rapid and foamy stream covered with sticks and straws and flowers and bonbons and never realizes its depth and volume this light frothy verse is only the vehicle of a solid and laborious antiquarian scholarship of an immense knowledge of the world and society books and men he modestly disclaimed having any imagination and said he must always have facts to work upon this was true but the same may be said of some great poets who have lacked invention except around a skeleton ready furnished what was true of keats and fitzgerald 
cannot nullify the merit of Barham. His fancy erected a huge and consistent superstructure on a very slender foundation. The same materials lay ready to the hands of thousands of others, who, however, saw only stupid monkish fables or dull country superstition. His own explanation of his handling of the church legends tickles a critic's sense of humor almost as much as the verses themselves. It is true that while differing utterly in his tone of mind and his attitude toward the medieval stories from that of the medieval artists and sculptors, whose gargoyles and other grotesques were carved without a thought of travesty on anything religious, he is at one with them in combining extreme irreverence of form with a total lack of irreverence of spirit toward the real spiritual mysteries of religion. He burlesques saints and devils alike, mocks the swarm of miracles of the medieval church, makes salient all the ludicrous aspects of medieval religious faith in its devout credulity and barbarous gropings, yet he never sneers at holiness or real aspiration, and through all the riot of fun in his masks one feels the sincere Christian and the warm-hearted man. But he was evidently troubled by the feeling that a clergyman ought not to ridicule any form in which religious feeling had ever clothed itself and he justified himself by professing that he wished to expose the absurdity of old superstitions and mummeries to help countervail the effect of the Oxford movement. Ingoldsby, as a soldier of Protestantism, turning monkish story into rollicking farces in order to show up what he conceived to be the errors of his opponents, is as truly Ingoldsby in a figure as any in his own legends. Yet one need not accuse him of hypocrisy or falsehood, hardly even of self-deception. He felt that dead superstitions and stories not reverenced even by the church that developed them were legitimate material for any use he could make of them. He felt that in dressing them up with his wit and fancy, he was harming nothing that existed, nor making anyone look lightly on the religion of Christ or the church of Christ and that they were the property of an opposing church body was a happy thought to set his conscience at rest. He wrote them thenceforth, with greater peace of mind and added satisfaction, and no doubt really believed that he was doing good in the way he alleged. And if the excuse gave to the world even one more of the inimitable legends, it was worth feeling and making. Barham's nature was not one which felt the problems and tragedies of the world deeply. He grieved for his friends, he helped the distresses he saw, but his imagination rested closely in the concrete. He was incapable of Weltschmerz, even for things just beyond his personal kin he had little vision or fancy. His treatment of the perpetual problem of sex temptations and lapses is a good example. He never seems to be conscious of the tragedy they envelop. To him they are always good jokes to wink over or smile at or be indulgent to. No one would ever guess from Ingoldsby, the truth he finds even in Don Juan, that a heavy price must all pay who thus err, in some shape. But we cannot have everything. If Barham had been sensitive to the tragic side of life, he could not have been the incomparable fun-maker he was. We do not go to the Ingoldsby legends to solace our souls when hurt or remorseful, to brace ourselves for duty, or to feel ourselves nobler by contact with the expression of nobility. 
but there must be play and rest for the senses as well as work and aspiration and there are worse services than relieving the strain of serious endeavor by enabling us to become jolly pagans once again for a little space and care not for the morrow as i lay a-thinking the last lines of barham as i lay a-thinking 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 mary sang the bird as she sat upon the spray there came a noble knight with his hauberk shining bright and his gallant heart was light free and gay as i lay a-thinking he rode upon his way as i lay a-thinking 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 sadly sang the bird as she sat upon the tree there seemed a crimson plain where a gallant knight lay slain and a steed with broken rein ran free as i lay a-thinking most pitiful to see as i lay a-thinking 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 mary sang the bird as she sat upon the bough a lovely maid came by and a gentle youth was nigh and he breathed many a sigh and a vow as i lay a-thinking her heart was gladsome now as i lay a-thinking 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 sadly sang the bird as she sat upon the thorn no more a youth was there but a maiden rent her hair and cried in sad despair that i was born as i lay a-thinking she perished forlorn as i lay a-thinking 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 sweetly sang the bird as she sat upon the briar there came a lovely child and his face was meek and mild yet joyously he smiled on his sire as i lay a-thinking a cherub mowed admire but i lay a-thinking 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 and sadly sang the bird as it perched upon a bier that joyous smile was gone and the face was white and wan as the down upon the swan doth appear as i lay a-thinking oh bitter flowed the tear as i lay a-thinking the golden sun was sinking oh mary sang that bird as it glittered on her breast with a thousand gorgeous dyes while soaring to the skies mid the stars she seemed to rise as to her nest as i lay a-thinking her meaning was expressed follow me away it boots not to delay twas so she seemed to say here is rest end of section eight recording by patty cunningham